Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. My guest today is Beth Bowen. She's a licensed social worker with three years of sobriety who helps alcohol-free women reclaim their power and build kick-ass lives in sobriety. Beth is a mama of two, a wife, and a sober women's coach who lives outside of Austin, Texas. Beth and I actually connected through Instagram, and I was drawn to her immediately because of a powerful post she wrote about why she doesn't identify with the label of being an alcoholic. I also don't identify as an alcoholic, and I don't use that term or that label to describe myself or the women I work with or friends I have on this path for many of the reasons that Beth expressed so clearly in her post. So we're going to talk about all of that today. And then Beth shared a workshop she was working on, on shame resilience. And I knew I needed to have her on the podcast to talk about smashing shame in sobriety. So Beth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Casey. I'm so, so excited to be here. It's such an honor. 
Oh, I'm so excited to have you. And I love the work you're doing because you're part of a growing movement that I also consider myself a part of, where we're really helping women lead these modern female-centric versions of life without alcohol. And you always say that we're powerful, not powerless. And I love that you're helping women uncover in a really positive and proactive way their identities now that alcohol isn't our constant companion? I mean, I feel like you said what you said about this modern version of it is exactly it. I think that there's such a growing movement of people who want a a more new age version of sobriety or living alcohol free or whatever it is they call it, uh, because so many of the old ways weren't necessarily a great fit for them. So I think that's exactly it. It's this, I I like to call it modern recovery because it's just a different take on kind of the old ways of doing things, but in a more accessible and a more kind of updated way that makes people feel really empowered. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of changing that idea that you have to hit some kind of a, a real dire bottom to decide that alcohol isn't working for you and to do it in a way where you're not necessarily anonymous or you're not feeling like it's something you shouldn't talk about with other women or with other people in your life because it's really a healthy choice. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's what's so important is when people realize that their story really does matter and that their story is not something to be ashamed of. It's it's something that they can share in a way that both empowers them, but also helps other people. I think I, I'm so invested in this storytelling and this kind of recovering out loud or being in sobriety out loud, because it really does have an amazing ripple effect. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I found that kept me drinking for a long time, even when I knew it wasn't really serving me and was causing issues, is A, of course, I couldn't imagine my life without alcohol because I was such a big drinker and it was so much part of my social circle. But I also didn't know a single person who had used to love to drink and had chosen to stop and was saying that life was better. Like that just wasn't available to me. I certainly knew people who drinking was never a big thing for them or you know, I, I honestly thought people who didn't drink were kind of weird because <laughs> I was just such a big drinker and I couldn't imagine yeah. people not loving it. But I feel Me like too. having people, you know, who used to drink and now don't and tell you it's better, that would have helped me long before I actually stopped. Oh, totally. Well, and it's like you and I have talked a little bit. I feel really passionate about not needing to put a label on it, because I think that that is a barrier to access for folks uh, choosing to remove alcohol from their life if they feel like they have to take on any sort of label that doesn't fit with them. Absolutely. So I actually, speaking of which, wanted to ask you to actually read what you wrote about what really drew me to like reach out to you and be like, oh my God, we need to have this conversation because that's exactly what I feel. And it started with the phrase words matter. So do you mind just reading that for us? Yeah, absolutely. I'll share the post that I um, had on Instagram a while ago. So again, like you said, it starts with words matter. The other day, someone called me an alcoholic. They were just making conversation, talking about things that I'm interested in, which I do appreciate. 
but I don't identify as an alcoholic. It's a label that doesn't explain my personal experience with leaving behind food. I don't really struggle with not drinking anymore. I don't feel like I'm powerless over alcohol. I don't align with the 12 steps. I don't personally identify with the disease model of addiction. And even when I was still drinking, the black and white dichotomy of either being someone who drank or being an alcoholic kept me drinking longer than I should have. I really thought those were my only two choices. And then I discovered this beautiful corner of the internet full of people who don't drink alcohol, who call themselves all sorts of things, teetotaler, sober, alcohol-free, non-drinker, sober curious, or nothing at all. I've learned a few things from my experience. The first is that words matter and labels can be a significant barrier for folks removing harmful habits from their lives. And as a side note, the mental health field needs an update on this. Second, you are the author of your own story and only you get to define yourself, no one else. And then third, figuring out what you align with, where your alcohol-free identity lives, is magic. It's freedom, fulfillment, and all the good squishy feelings. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And there's so much even within that, that I wanted to dig into. So for example, I was curious whether the person who called you an alcoholic, you know, or described you as that, are they alcohol free? She was not. So an interesting, um, I guess, kind of bit of context for that is she is the child of an, an alcoholic. So her father is in AA, identifies as an alcoholic, is in recovery. But that is the framework within which she grew up in. And I think that that really belies the kind of the challenge here, because so many people have grown up within the system where really the only option was the 12 steps or was AA. And many people have amazing family experiences with that. So they have a parent who is in recovery and who did get help through the 12 steps. But I feel like it's a little bit of a generational shift as well, because as those of us who are in like, I'm a, I'm a millennial, I guess you would say I'm an elder millennial, but those of us as that are growing up um, and, and starting to have our own issues with alcohol and, and getting our own footing, have a little bit of a different take on it than perhaps our parents' generation or our parents' parents' generation. So she was a child of a man who was in at AA and that was really her only framework. So I think it's just a learning of updating our language a little bit and understanding that there's a much broader spectrum of of people who choose to not drink or maybe can't drink or um, really need to change their habits with alcohol who don't necessarily fall in that same small box fit for the 12 steps. And I feel very, very strongly that I'm I'm not anti-AA. I am pro whatever helps you recover. And so if that is AA, that's amazing. That's incredible. It just wasn't something that aligned with me. And for me, it really kept me drinking a lot longer than I should have when I thought that that was my only choice. And so when I was talking to this woman, she just said it very casually. She didn't mean it as anything, but she was relating to me and with her, her experience with her father and having this conversation, which I love. I love talking about these things and I love recovering out loud, as I, as I say, but it was just, it's really interesting when somebody puts a label on you that you're like, oh, that's, that's not me. That's not who I am. I think that if it is helpful for you, if it helps you take it off the table to say, I'm an alcoholic, that's great. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. anything that helps people who drink problematically or Mm -hmm. become addicted to it because it's addictive 
and helps them stop is positive. But I also know from all the women I work with and for myself as well, that that was a real barrier to entry Mm because the idea is that no one would stop drinking unless they're an alcoholic. I mean, that's sort of the unspoken information. It's also this dividing line. I had a similar experience with the quote unquote word at work where a friend of mine um, who I'm pretty close with, who knew I quit drinking, said casually at work when we were talking about something, she's like, oh, but you chose to stop drinking. It's not like you're an alcoholic. Mm, And that made me sort of took me aback too, because I was just like, why is it, you know, on the flip side, why is it so important to you to separate me from quote unquote them? You know, is it because I'm really similar to you Mm and how you used to drink? And I was just like, well, yes, I chose to drink. And also it's addictive and it's really hard to quit. Just being like, there's not, you know, because she also is a big drinker and Mm she was always going to wine tasting and, you know, saying she was hungover and going to bunco nights, which I've never played. I don't even know what that is, but (laughs) apparently it's a thing near where I live for a lot of women (laughs) with kids. They go to bunco and they drink a shitload. But I was like, yeah, it was just something that like put me off, even though I have a lot of friends who identify with the term alcoholic. I also have a lot of friends who've recovered through AA. And I also went to AA for about four months, a couple years before I finally quit. And one of the reasons that I went back to drinking was the idea of like, I don't want this. I don't want this to be my life. I don't want this to be my label. I really didn't like going in there and feeling all the pressure to say, Mm. I'm Casey, I'm an alcoholic, like it just turned my stomach. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't say that, you got a lot of feedback that you're in denial, and you have an ego, and this is going to, you know, and so that was really hard for me too. But on flip side, both separating me from quote, unquote, alcoholics, because I'm like, what the fuck? I also was like, you don't know what you're talking about. So just right. shut your mouth. You know, like kind of, I was like, let's not, you know, you're not, you're not informed enough to, right. to label well, this. I, I think that's such a good point because really the definition of an alcoholic is, is kind of vague. And, you know, we have technical definitions of alcohol use disorder and all of these different, but when you say like, are you an alcoholic or are you not? So many people of us have done those late night Googles of like, am I an alcoholic? I don't, I don't know. Like what's the barrier here? And there's really just no concrete definition. And I've learned it's really much more of, like you said, like an identifier. It's, it's, a, it's something that you identify with. It's a kind of a, a personality that you take on, I guess. And like I said, I think that's a, just a really big barrier for folks because in two ways, you can either go and have this gut feeling that you're like, I, I need to change something. I don't feel good about my relationship with alcohol, but I'm not an alcoholic. Like, I guess I can't stop. So it's a barrier in the first way. But I think it also helps people justify continuing to drink in problematic ways. They're like, well, I'm not an alcoholic, so what I'm doing is fine. And there's just such this middle ground of folks who really could benefit from changing their relationship with alcohol. and taking it off the table or, you know, doing a dry January or whatever it is and could really benefit from this. But having this black and white dichotomy makes it just to where all those people in the middle get lost. And I think yeah. that it does a disservice to people 
who could really benefit from the change to just have option A and option B when there's really like this entire wide spectrum of ways you can be a person who doesn't drink alcohol and identities that you can take on and approaches to it and, you know, groups that you go to. And I think that it just invites more people into this positive lifestyle change. If we take the stigma away from it, allow people to define themselves and allow people to figure out what aligns with them. Because once you do, once you figure it out and once you're like, okay, this feels really good to say, I'm just alcohol free, or it feels really good to say I'm sober, whatever it is that you find, and then it starts feeling really good. And it feels like something that you can jive with. That's when it gets fun. That's when you don't feel like you're losing out on things. That when, that's when you like get to this place of empowerment and, and less of a place of just not being able to drink. And I think that yeah. that was one of the pieces of, of AA and, and the 12 steps that was tricky for me is I don't really identify with the disease model. I don't feel like now that I'm three over three years sober, I don't feel like I'm in constant recovery. I don't feel like I'm one day away from throwing it all away. It doesn't feel as hard for me now. And I think I identify much more with the learning model of addiction, which says that we learn these habits and just as we learn them, then we can unlearn them. And I think that once people see that there are there are different ways to approach it. I think it just gives people more access to it. Yeah, I love that because I also like, I approach quitting drinking through the lens of of habit change. And how do you break this habit of drinking? Like what are your cues, cravings, responses, and reward in terms of why you drink? And obviously it's addictive, like Mm -hmm. in the same way that cigarettes are addictive. It, you know, physically makes you want to drink more and more often. And you clearly go into withdrawal when you don't drink. And when you do drink, you get this huge dopamine Mm -hmm. hit. So like there are definite, you know, physical reasons that it becomes habitual as well, but it's also your beliefs about it and your reward system and, you know, your physical environment and your social environment and how it's set up which is not to say that you need to change your whole social environment, but it is to say that it is a habit that takes Mm -hmm. time and effort to break. But I love that you say that you don't struggle with not drinking anymore because I don't feel like I do either. I actually quit five years ago Mm -hmm. in two or three weeks. I think when this episode comes out, it'll be the week before I hit five years. How exciting. Yeah. I don't struggle with it and I haven't for years. I'm just like, and I'm super proud of the fact that I used to drink Mm -hmm. and I stopped and it was really hard to do. And it was a positive life choice for me. You know, when you said, and we're talking about words matter, I also don't say it doesn't bother me as much as the term alcoholic, but I don't really say I'm in recovery. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people have a positive association with that, right? that they're a woman living in recovery. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And I also don't, if someone identifies as an alcoholic, I think that's great and wonderful and fine. I just know for me, it was a barrier, but I don't say I'm in recovery in my mind. I'm just living. And when I was drinking, I was recovering Mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. Like that was living in a withdrawal and recovery and withdrawal and recovery. Oh man. Yeah. That's so true. Well, so the other thing that I kind of wanted to dig into that you said from this post is 
that you said that you discovered this whole corner of the internet that was amazing. And I'm wondering, how did you find that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I I think I first accessed it through hashtags, just by looking and seeing what was being posted on the sober curious hashtag or on the alcohol free hashtag and kind of just dipping my toes into all of these different communities because there are a ton of really cool communities within this little corner of the world um, that that operate their own little ecosystems. And I personally work with one called a thousand hours dry. So a thousand hours dry is a wellness challenge, but it's it's also based in promoting the alcohol free lifestyle. And so that's kind of how I dipped my toes into it. But it's really just kind of a slow build of finding these communities. Because I know for me, what was so hard when I first removed alcohol is that I felt so alone and I felt like I was the only person doing this. And I was the only person in my friend group for sure. Like you said, there were people who weren't interested in drinking and then just could, you know, kind of put it away. But I, like I had built a huge identity around being the wine mom and this drinking culture and that I felt so alone. And it was just like, I found one post and then I found another post. And then I kind of went down that rabbit hole, saw who they were interacting with. Um, And there's really, I mean, there's so many of us out there and it really changes your perception of the world and of what being a sober person or alcohol-free person is when you start seeing so many people like you doing it, like you and me, like people it gives people so much access when they see somebody like you or somebody like me and they, they're like, okay, I can see myself in her story. And that's why I'm so passionate about sharing this. This is why I talk about this stuff to the internet is because I talk to people every day who are like, wow, I found you. I found this little sober curious, this, this alcohol-free corner of the internet. I thought I was the only one. And once you kind of stumble into this and you start kind of changing your feed, so you're following more sober people and you're following more of these communities that are promoting and educating and and working in this kind of alcohol-free space, it really starts to slowly change the the way your brain perceives being a person who doesn't drink because it, it goes from feeling so alone and feeling so isolated to seeing such a vibrant community of people doing this and living these amazing lives without alcohol. And it makes it fun. Yeah, I love that. And I agree. Like, you know, you think that because you surround yourself with drinkers and you've drank your whole life, that life without alcohol is boring and you will never find people like you who also don't drink. And what I found is women who don't drink are the coolest, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, because they've gone through a hard thing. They've had to make difficult choices. They're real, they're vulnerable. They don't talk about a lot of small talk. Like they get deep right away. And also they have life experience. They love to have fun. They've done some intelligent work about what they want in their lives. They're proactive because you have to be right to make this choice. You have to be strong and, you know, uh, just self-directed mm. and open to new things. And you, you've you expanded your mind and your life experience. And so I love women who don't drink. And I've found so many that I connect with on a really deep level. Yeah. And I've even, I've even moved several of these online connections into real life. So I've, I've met several of these women in my town and we've gone to yoga or we've gotten coffee. And I agree completely with what you said. It's, it's an entirely different 
relationship dynamic when you meet somebody who is also sober and especially those of us who have struggled with it and then chosen to remove it because you have this like instant soul connection where you have some understanding on some level even if you don't know all the details of what they've been through and how resilient they are for coming out on the other side because you've done it as well and you've you've done the work and like you said so much of, of not drinking is learning so much more about yourself and how you operate and what you need and what you cope with. And so much of this inner learning comes from it that I, you know, I say that sober people are some of the most evolved people I know, because we have to put in all this work to figure out who the fuck we are without alcohol, that so much of the rest of the world is not even bothering with because they're, you know, too busy doing shots. So I, I agree. It's really, really neat to start building these relationships with other people who are sober and who are alcohol free or whatever they call it, because it's just, a, it's a deeper connection and it's a deeper understanding of each other. And some of my closest friends are, you know, my internet friends or some of the ones that have, have gone from the internet to real life if they're here locally. Um, but yeah, it's just an entirely different dynamic than, than folks who drink. And I still have plenty of friends who drink and actually most of my friends from, from my old days still drink, but it just is a really cool way to connect with somebody and something that has really enriched my life. Absolutely. I still have a ton of friends who drink, obviously, you know, high school and college. And for me, 20 years of working and living in Seattle, and I was sort of the queen of the wine tasting weekends mm -hmm. and the mommy play dates. And you don't lose all those people. Mm -mm. I mean, if you have an actual friendship, you don't. But my friendships, my world of people I interact with has gotten so much bigger mm. and I've made so many more deep friendships. And that's actually really cool because I quit drinking when I was 40. And in the years before that, it was really hard to make new friends, yeah. right? You had your family, you had work, you know, you went out for happy hour with colleagues, but you didn't make these deep friendships that like you did in college or mm -hmm. in your early twenties where you're you're going through so much in life and discovering so much and struggling with dating and struggling with, you know, who I am and how I'm going to make money and what I do for my career. And when you go through quitting drinking and, you know, it's suddenly being isolated and then needing to open up to other people, it just goes so much deeper. So I agree. I went down to Bend, Oregon, and I have a couple friends who quit drinking down there. We went to a a live music outdoor concert, which was really cool. And they had a kombucha bar, Ooh, yeah. which was awesome. And they had brought down a couple people they met who also quit drinking, who live in Bend. And immediately it was like, oh, when did you quit drinking? Oh, three years ago. Oh, I'm almost five. And it was just this instant, like, yeah, I get you. Yeah, I love that. Well, and, and something you said made me think, it has also really enriched the relationships that I still have from before I quit drinking. So like you said, you, you do lose some of those more superficial relationships where if your only connection was drinking wine at a play date or, you know, going to brunch or going to happy hour, but the ones that really matter, quitting drinking and becoming a person who talks openly about sobriety and about struggle and mental health and things like this gave me almost a door to discussing these things with my close friends who maybe we had never really had those kind of conversations before. We'd never really talked about like all of the things that make it really hard to be a person in the world. 
even if we were really close and like some of my, you know, my soul sisters, but we, we just never had kind of that foot in the door to have these deep, deep conversations. And it wasn't overnight. It took some, some time to kind of step into these conversations. And it's been interesting because as, as you know, people can have really strong reactions when you quit drinking because it makes them think about their own drinking. But the ones that were willing to kind of step into to learning about this and learning more about my story, even though they still drink and even though alcohol is still part of their lives, it really deepened some of those older friendships and some of the ones that really mattered because now we talk about these things. Now we talk about addiction and mental health and like our check-ins are not just, how are you doing? It's like, how's your heart? So I think that's a big fear for people when they remove alcohol is that they're just going to lose everything. They're going to lose all their friends. They're going to lose all of their connections. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty frank about the fact that you might lose some of them, but the ones that stay and the ones that stick around just get so much deeper. When you remove the alcohol, I feel like you remove the bullshit and you really get to the heart of the good stuff. Yeah, I totally agree because, you know, everybody kind of struggles with something and even the people you talk to all the time, it's very rare that you actually get into it. It's, you might complain about tough times with your kids or maybe with your boss or maybe with your husband, but it's rarely, and this is giving me so much anxiety and I've had Mm. a panic attack or I'm worried about my marriage or all the deep stuff, like I'm struggling with my kid versus my Mm. kids being tough. And, you know, even when when I open up about quitting drinking and what it was like before and struggling and questioning it and talking shit to myself and all this stuff, (laughs) they open up about what they're going through, because suddenly it's a, you know, you're vulnerable and they, they want to connect and they feel like they can be honest with you. And that really takes friendships to a different level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, so that actually transfers really well. I mean, also the conversation about labels, I wanted to talk to you about smashing shame in sobriety, because I know that's something that you work on really closely as well as you have steps to work through to get through shame and sobriety. And can you talk to me about that? Yeah. So like you mentioned in the introduction, my background is in social work. I'm a, I have my master's degree in social work and clinical therapy. And it's been a really interesting uh, way to step into sobriety because when I was practicing, I really had no handle on my problematic drinking. And so I, I went to grad school and I learned all this and I was trained and I practiced for many years as a person who drank alcohol in very problematic ways, but I was able to separate myself from the issue because I was not the same as my, my clients or my patients. I looked different than them, but that experience and that training has really informed the work I do now. And now, now I work with alcohol-free women and one of the core tenets of my program and of the work that I do with these women is on shame resilience. So I know that's kind of a, and it's not a very digestible word, but basically working through shame because my ethos to approaching living alcohol-free and living in sobriety is that one of the things that keeps us the most stuck and the, the least able to move forward is shame because so many of us in the alcohol-free community have some of these really deep, deep shame stories. And that can be shame from 
the big things. So if we racked up credit card debt or we were unfaithful to a partner or if we fell on the dance floor at a wedding and made a fool of ourselves. So we have these kind of acute shame stories from when we were drinking, but we also have these, I like to compare it. Are you familiar with big T, little T trauma? Yes. So I have, I like to say that we have big S shame and and little S shame too. So we have the big shame for those acute shame experiences. So for the ones that we just like made a fool of ourselves or we did something bad or we betrayed somebody else. Then we also have these little S shame stories from the way we just weren't able to show up in the world the way we want to. Or if we didn't feel like we added up as a mother when we were drinking, or if we didn't feel like we were able to be the person that we we want to be or the person that we feel we are in our heart. So we we build these shame stories of who we were when we were drinking. And even if you are years into sobriety, even if you've been alcohol-free for years, if you haven't worked through some of those shame stories and you haven't processed them, it keeps you stuck and it keeps you hiding and stagnant and where you're still so stuck in, in the old days and the way you feel and and, you know, shame manifests very viscerally. It's, it's a whole body feeling. So when we are in a shame experience, it literally ignites our fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. So that is our central nervous system, our parasympathetic nervous system. So that's when your whole system starts firing. It's where you get sweaty. It's where your feet sweat. My feet sweat when I, when I feel shame because it literally is a physical stress response. So when we are living in shame, when we are reliving old shame, we are activating our bodies with this stress response, sometimes constantly. And that's very, we know that that is very bad for our health. It has a lot of poor health outcomes if we have high levels of cortisol or if we have high levels of stress. And so if we're still living in these shame experiences, it is making us unable to move forward, but it's also really detrimental for our health. So that is really the heart of the work I do is working through these shame experiences, because I believe once we're able to work through them, then we can step into all the other stuff. Then we can step into the personal development. And that's when we can start adding all this good shit into sobriety because we have made this space for it. So yeah, I can't claim um, that I have created this theory. It's actually a theory that was made by Brene Brown, Dr. Brene Brown, who is like a personal hero. Of oh, mine. I absolutely love Brene Brown. When she I came to Seattle, her. a bunch of us went to see her and it was awesome. Yeah. So she's, you know, kind of the queen of shame, we say. She's done all of the, the research and she's created all these theories and it's really given us the language and the tools to be able to work through shame. And it's, you know, shame's not a sexy word. It's it's funny when people are, you know, they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm a shame expert. And they're like, oh, that's kind of kind of heavy. It's not a sexy word, but I feel so strongly that it's it's one of those things that once we can overcome and when we can build the skills and tools to be able to process future shame better, we are so much more equipped to live life in a healthful and happy way. So like I said, this was created by Dr. Brené Brown. It's called the Shame Resilience Theory. And it really does have four steps that we can work through. And this is kind of the heart of what I teach in my program. It's got a couple of other components in it as well. But I love working through these shame experiences with my clients because it just lifts the weight off of their shoulders so that they can go forward and, and love being sober and find all of like the good, juicy, fun parts of it once they've worked through it. So the very first piece of shame resilience is 
and this is what I, you know, I have a webinar called Smashing Shame and Sobriety. It's a little bit of a tongue twister, but I, I teach this and I would love to give this to your, your readers as well. I've got a recording of it. That would be amazing. We can add it to yeah. the show notes of this podcast episode so people can okay, come perfect. and listen to it. Yeah. So the, the very first step is, is just identifying shame because so many of us lack the language and the self-awareness of being able to put a name to things, to, to put a name to experiences and how it shows up in our body and what it feels like and even identifying the experience in the first place. So really, if we're able to pinpoint what shame feels like in our body, if we're able to say, man, shame lives in my chest and it feels really heavy. Or for me, shame feels hot and it feels red. If we can put these descriptors to it. So what does it smell like? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? Does it have a color? Does it have a sound? So if we can put a name to how shame is showing up in our bodies, that's the first step. And so if we're able to say, I feel this shame experience in my body when I think about that time that I drank too much at a wedding and I fell on the dance floor. And this shame feels hot and it feels angry. And, and you start to get this language and you start to be able to put a name to it. That's step one. Because if we can't do that, we can't work through any of the rest of it. If we haven't gained awareness for this, we can't continue to move forward. And my favorite way to do this is conducting a body scan, which is a, a tool in mindfulness where you, you just kind of tune into your breath, you dial into your breath, and then you just start to notice how your body feels and you, you know, you start at the crown, you kind of work your way down and just notice if you feel any tension, if you feel any heat, if you feel anything in your body, it's just a really accessible way to start dialing into the sensations in your body. So a, a body scan um, can be 30 seconds. It can be five minutes. It can be a guided meditation, or it can just be a quick check-in. But this just starts to get us more in tune with where things are showing up in our body. And again, this is just a skill we build. It's something that we learn over time and we, we practice and we get better at because once we are able to kind of check in, that gives us more skills moving forward. So if we feel a shame experience, because we often do feel it in our bodies before our brain checks into it, if we can feel it, we can stop it in its tracks. So the first step is figuring out where it is, where it lives, what it's called, what it looks like. And again, my favorite way to do that is a body scan. And then once we are able to identify it, then the next step is to just identify the context of it. And quick question, do you do the body scan when you're feeling shame or do you do it sort of thinking back to previous shameful events? That's a really good question because you can do it in a couple of different contexts. So the work that I do with my clients is usually recalling past shame. So we work through, we, we recall the memory of it, which usually initiates that shame response. It usually initiates that parasympathetic nervous system. So even just thinking about an old shame experience can give you that physical sensation in your body. But the beauty of shame resilience in this, this four-step framework is that once you get good at it and once you start practicing it, you notice it in real time. So if you are going forward and you experience something that is going to initiate one of those shame responses in your body, you can stop it and you can kind of cut it off before it ever internalizes in your body. So before it ever starts getting stuck and before it ever starts manifesting in your behavior and in your emotional health. So yeah, that's a great question. You can really use this in two different settings. So recalling past shame, but also in real time. And so the body scan is, is kind of the same, I guess. 
a body scan would be kind of real time, um, just a quick check in. A true body scan I like using for the past shame experiences. And so once you've kind of identified this and once you've found it and figured out where it lives and what it is, then the second step is to contextualize it. So understand what context is around this shame experience that is making it shameful in the first place. Because, you know, if we were brand new babies in a brand new world that had no culture, that had no society, that had no expectations of people, we wouldn't experience shame in the same way if we did something that is now considered shameful because there's no context for it. But we live in a society that has expectations of what women look like, expectations of what parents look like, expectations uh, you know, religious frameworks or different cultures that we've grown up in. So if we're able to figure out what the context of this shame experience is, that gives us, again, that language that helps us kind of step back and take a little bit of like a hundred foot view so that we're better able to understand why this is bringing us shame in the first place. So for example, the, the falling on the dance floor at the wedding, or a better example is a smallest shame experience of feeling like I wasn't a good mother with the way I was drinking. That is contextualized in what we expect mothers to be and what we expect women to be and what we consider acceptable and not acceptable for drinking behavior, especially within the context of motherhood. So when you're able to step back from it and give it more legs, that's again, just another tool to help you remove the physical feeling of it a little bit and kind of start processing that in a way that makes more sense. So give me one more example of that, like the idea of what we expect from mothers and Mm -hmm. feeling like you didn't measure up to that. And then somehow sort of, it sounds like stepping back from it. So it's less personal and more intellectual. Is that what you do? Yeah, exactly. And, and when we understand that for, you know, for, for me, when I was drinking, I would drink late into the night. And I would wake up early with my baby and I would be useless from like 5 a.m. when he would wake up. I was useless from five until noon. I laid on the couch. I watched the Today Show every morning and I didn't do anything. I let him play on the floor while I watched TV. And for me, that was not what a mother did. A mother got up and made breakfast and got her kids off to school and, you know, then started tidying up the house. And I just couldn't show up in that way and and fit this. And I was young. I was a new mother. I was. I actually quit drinking. I have an older son. He was eight, but my daughter was two years old when I Mm. quit drinking. So Mm -hmm. similar. And I also went to work. So I had the whole 3am wake up, feel like absolute Ah, shit, crushing anxiety. And then going to the bus stop, feeling shaky with my eight-year-old and driving my daughter to daycare with like trying to talk to her in the back seat with the bloodshot eyes. I mean, that was big shame for me. Yeah. So when you can contextualize, like we expect mothers to be completely in tune to their children and 100% devoted. And we expect mothers to be able to have their shit together and be able to, to show up for their children and We deeply shame women in addiction, especially mothers in addiction and who are struggling with substances. And, you know, that feeling of that hangover just really, really got me and and not being able to be this mother in the morning. Um, But none of that would have any context or any legs if we didn't have expectations of motherhood, if we didn't have expectations of people who can and cannot handle alcohol. So when we're able to kind of figure out, like you said, it, it intellectualizes it and helps us 
understand that this has broader context. And the whole part of shame resilience is getting out from our own internal feedback. Because what keeps us in shame is living in secrecy and living in silence and having the only person who confirms our shame experience to us as ourselves. And so we get in this, this loop of this negative self-talk. We confirm that negative self-talk to ourselves and then we spiral. So when we contextualize this, that is part of getting outside of ourselves and getting outside of this inner feedback loop that we've developed and starting to understand it on a broader scope. So the second step is to contextualize it. And then the third step, so this is really the heart of shame resilience and this idea about shame, is that shame cannot live in the light. When it is spoken out loud, when it is brought into connection, it's immediately stopped. So the third step of shame resilience is just connecting with somebody. And the third and fourth step are kind of intertwined because the fourth step is speaking this shame aloud. Because once we are able to put words to it and when we are able to share it with somebody else and then receive the me too's or the I thought I was the only one or oh my gosh me too like I, I you know I thought nobody else felt this way or even if they can't relate to our experience the okay but I still love you or okay but you're still worthy and you're still lovable and so when you're able to connect with somebody and they can help you interrupt that feedback loop that you've created in yourself then it immediately stops the shame in its tracks it immediately loses its potency and it starts to to kind of rewire the way your brain perceives this shame. So as soon as it's been smashed by somebody else, by this connection with this other person who still sees you as whole and worthy and lovable, then it, it stops having this power over you. This isn't something that just stops overnight. It's it's not an instant process. It's working through these things in steps and really digging into the work. You can't just smash shame in 15 minutes. But once we start being able to name it and identify it, and then we understand where it's coming from, what it's rooted in, and then we connect with somebody and we share this shame, it's this ongoing process that we can kind of do in this cyclical way that just over time builds our strength against it. And I mean, I think that's just the heart of it. And that's what's so important for me sharing my alcohol-free story is I get women in my DMs every day who tell me, oh my gosh, I thought I was the only person who feels the way you feel. Or I read your post and it was like I wrote it myself. And even just being on the other side of that, being somebody who reads my post, when they see themselves in my story, that can help their shame cycle as well. That disrupts Mm -hmm. that feedback loop that tells them they're a terrible person. They can see me and then they can see that I'm not a terrible person. They don't think I'm a terrible person, but I've, I've had the same experiences as they have, or I've had similar experiences. And it really just roots in the importance of connection, the importance of connection and of community and of, you know, doing this with other people and, and letting ourselves be seen and be known. Yeah. I mean, I love, I'm a member of a couple, I, not too many, but a couple um, secret private Facebook groups for people quitting drinking and a lot of women quitting drinking. And that was huge for me, not only to see other people share their story and then have so many women and some men, you know, jump on and say, it's okay, me too. You're a good person. This isn't a big deal but also to share my own story. And that's, 
that's something that was really, really helpful. And to be able at some point to even laugh about it and even, you know, get far enough away from it where you're like, yeah, that was pretty fucked up, you know, but like, (laughs) just kind of be like, whoa, what's up with that one? So that's really helpful. I do find though, and this is something to, to work through and it's, it's fine and you can do it. There is definitely this, what I call like a vulnerability hangover after the fact. Oh yeah. Yeah. And what do you say to women who feel that, who share? And then the next day they have just this crushing anxiety or like, what the fuck did I do? And you know. Yeah. And I mean, it definitely is something that you get used to. That that speaks to a very important part of of who you are sharing this with. I am very, I create a space in my my program that gives them a container to share within that feels very safe because we spend a lot of time getting to know each other. They can share with just me. I can be the first person they they tell these these things to. Um, But it's very important to have the person who you are inviting into your story be somebody who is safe. And it has to be, you know, it has to be a therapist or a partner who's going to respond well or a best friend. Because if it is somebody who is not going to respond well, if it is somebody who is going to say, well, yeah, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. That's that like that's just going to destroy all of the work. That's going to yeah. ingrain that shame experience. And that's going to be like, oh, well, yeah, I thought it was fucked up. And then they told I told me I was. It just so amplifies like I was right. it. Yeah. So it is really important that the container in which you share this story is going to be a safe one. And Brene talks about that all the time, doesn't she? Because mm-hmm. I've done a couple workshops with people who are facilitators of her work. I did a three-day workshop with like eight women and it was, you know, eight hours a day and it was so deep and so mm. good. But, you know, I know she talks about who's allowed in your arena and finding your people. But can you talk mm-hmm. about what that, you know, how she contextualizes that? Yeah. And I mean, I think I think it's really just for me, the vulnerability hangovers really show up when I share in a broader space. I used to get them a lot when I the first time I ever shared about my sobriety um, was I was two years sober. So I had I've been sober for a long time, but I had never really shared about it. And I wrote an Instagram post on a whim one day about how I woke up. It was my third alcohol-free New Year's Day. And I wrote that post and I threw my phone across the floor, the room. I was like, I don't want to look at the responses. I don't want to see it. Like, I can't do this. And then I spent the whole day having this anxiety hangover. So I don't really recommend um, telling all of Instagram as the first, the first time that you ever share any of your stories. Because that, that does yield quite the... Um, the vulnerability hangover. But yeah, it's just, there are so many different containers that you can have access to and that you can build that are going to be this safer space. So obviously that's, that's why my program is what my program is. Well, how many people are in your program at a time? Like, how does it work? Tell us about that. So my program is a 12 week mentorship and I cap it at 12 people. And right now we have seven in it. And so I, I do conduct interviews to make sure everyone's a good fit, but it is going to be a safe space for the other group of people. And I'm very intentional about creating that safe space and who who does and does not do the program because I do we do hard work. We do heart work. You know, we go through this this shame resilience in real time and we work through these real shame stories. So we have it my current cohort is seven women. So we have this really intimate group of, of women and we're 
we do a lot of other work before we even get to the shame work so that they have a foundation with each other and so that there is this community. And I still leave the expectations pretty open. So if you don't feel like you are called to share in this group setting, they also have access to you one-on-one so they can use that. But this is something that it doesn't happen overnight. You don't feel like, I mean, on the other hand, you never feel like you're ready for it. But if you walk into a, a setting where you're not certain that it's going to be well received or you don't feel safe in, that can certainly exaggerate the shame feelings and that can make it worse. So it is just, it's so important for it to be a trusted source with the person that you are kind of opening up to. Yeah. And so I'm curious, I know you work with women in sobriety. Are the women in your group usually they have quit drinking and now they're working through shame that they have? Or do you have women who are still drinking problematically or drinking, but they think that they should stop? Like, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. So I very intentionally made the program for after you have quit drinking. You know, kind of what my tagline is, you've quit drinking, now what? Because yeah. when I, uh, what I found when I had quit drinking, quit drinking was, quitting drinking was really hard. Removing alcohol from my life was really hard. But I found almost the harder part was everything that came after. All of the figuring out who I was without alcohol, figuring out where my place in this community was. If I had a place in this community, how do I share my story? How do I make this fun? How do I feel like I've gained things instead of just feeling deprived? And so I did intentionally make this program as something for women after they have already removed alcohol. So we've got kind of a wide spectrum. I've got some gals who uh, you know, started a dry January and are committing to living alcohol-free. I do make the caveat that it's not a, a program to help you quit drinking. So yeah. if you are in active addiction, if you are you know, struggling with alcohol regularly, it's probably not a good fit. But if you are nearly sober and you feel like you're not in active addiction, it's great for that. I've got some women who have celebrated a year sober kind of a wide spectrum, but really it is because when I was first alcohol free, you know, there are a lot of programs out there to help you quit drinking and a lot of resources for that. And so I I didn't feel like I wanted to step into that just because there are so many women like I, like you, you have an amazing um, framework for your clients and the way you work with your clients. And it felt like for me, I wanted to create something as the next step for people as as the next thing to go into. So once they've learned how to change their habits and once they've learned how to remove alcohol, I want to help them build all the good juicy shit. Yeah. I mean, I love that because I, you're right. I do work with women who want to quit drinking. They've tried to moderate before they've decided it doesn't work for them, but they realize they need support and guidance and a framework of like what to do the first week and what to do the second week. And what to expect and how to make it okay and how to shape your beliefs around it. And one of the things, one of the reasons I asked that question is because, you know, unlike my experience in AA, I actually feel like in the beginning, when you're trying to get traction, when you're trying to quit drinking, it's actually not the right time to go back and deal with all the shit that Mm -mm. you're not proud of, or you're not happy of. Like, Mm -mm. I really feel like in the beginning, you need to be built up, you need to be loved, you need to be like, Oh, my God, you did seven days, you're a fucking Mm. badass. You know, you got through your craving, you are incredible. This is a positive step, you are a good person. And by the way, we're all good people. (laughs) But 
I always, women are like, okay, I'm feeling all this stuff. I'm, I'm feeling so Uh, guilty. And I'm like, yes. And let's put that aside from right right. now, because you need to take care of your emotions. And there's plenty Mm. of time once you have a little bit of distance to dig into that. And I also like, I do life coaching for women after Mm -hmm. they quit drinking. Like when we get to sort of 40, 50, 60 days where it's like, okay, now what do you want? Mm. But I feel like coaching doesn't work when you're in the addiction cycle, when you're in the drinking cycle, you just need to get out of that until you get the Mm -hmm. mind space and the emotional space to be like, okay, now what do you want? Because drinking and Mm -hmm. trying not to drink and drinking again, it takes up so much Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm, I think it's great that you're doing it after quit drinking. When I first quit drinking, it was all hands on deck. Like it was just not drinking that day. So I completely agree. I think the hard, the deep work that you kind of get into in longer term sobriety is not something that should be even touched in the first, however, however long you're I totally agree. struggling with that. And I mean, I talk to women all the time. They're like, oh my gosh, how do I quit sugar? And I'm like, oh, babe, leave the, like, eat all the sugar you want. Yes. Like, give your, give yourself this grace. Cause that is such a, a less important thing than just not drinking. Like yeah. I went on a quest for the ultimate chocolate chip cookie recipe in my first year of sobriety. Like, I'm not going to tell you to quit the sugar because it's better than a glass of wine. And so it's it's like you said, I think in that early, those early days in the early sobriety, it really is just not drinking and just getting out of that cycle and and just taking a look at your habits and and kind of stepping back from that active addiction. And yeah, I would not recommend. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think, I mean, I think once you stop drinking, there is all the reasons we drank, right? Whether it's social anxiety or whether it's, being an overachiever and and having this racing mm-hmm. mind or whether you have this shame or bad coping skills or are mm-hmm. highly sensitive or whatever it is like i think for every single person it's different or a relationship that's problematic mm-hmm. or what it, codependency i mean they're all the reasons but you really can't figure that out while no. you're drinking you have to Mm-mm. get away from that and then you develop all the coping skills for like okay, now let me peel back the onion and deal with that stuff underneath. So tell me what resources, I know you have a ton of resources you have, but if if women are listening to this and they're like, yes, I want to do this deeper work, this will really help me be free and navigate the world without alcohol with confidence and pride and joy. Like, what can they do to to um, tap into some of those resources you have? Yeah, I would love to share my webinar recording with them. I've got a, a Smashing Shame in Sobriety workshop. It's about an hour-long workshop, and it has a workbook that goes with it. So just some journal prompts to be able to identify that shame, but also start to work through what it might feel like sharing shame and things like that. That would be so awesome. I know a lot of women are going to want to tap into it. Tell you what, give me the link for where they can access it. And I'll put it in the show notes of this episode. So anyone listening, you can go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash podcast. This episode with Beth on smashing shame and sobriety will be right there. You can click on it and in the notes, you'll find the link. 
Great. And they can also, in my uh, link in my bio on Instagram has a link for it as well if they can't find it there. Um, but I love connecting with folks in the DMs. I love talking with people and, and hearing their stories. So I'm pretty pretty much an open book over on Instagram. Uh, my handle is at Beth Bowen underscore. I've been trying to, trying to get the at Beth Bowen for a while, but it is currently taken. That's awesome. Cool. Well, we'll link to that as well. I also, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, so how did you quit drinking? Because we always talk about this patchwork of recovery, many paths, especially modern Mm. recovery, that there is so much more out there other than the 12 steps. And if you want to choose the 12 steps, that's amazing. And I know so Mm. many women who have found alcohol-free living and sobriety through that and are very happy. But I personally worked with a sober coach. That was my path one-on-one. And then I read all the quit lit books and I had, Mm. you know, online support through my favorite, you know, free private Facebook groups. But what was your path? So that's a great question. And I love sharing this because as somebody who is now three years sober, it feels so inaccessible for folks who are just trying to move alcohol. I was sober curious where I knew I needed to change my relationship with alcohol for probably at least eight months before I actually quit alcohol. So my my introduction to it was Googling yoga to quit drinking Mm. at like 10 o'clock at night, a bottle of wine in because I was like, those yoga people look like they got their shit Oh, so you weren't into yoga before? You were just like, "Um, that's going to be my path. Like I tried a running club. I was like, I'm going to join a running club because it's at you know, we met at night after work and I was like, and then I won't drink, but that's awesome. I always am like, those yoga people seem so centered. Right. And so I didn't, I practiced quite a bit of yoga now, but I didn't at the time. And I was like, they they got their shit together. Maybe that'll be my path. And I actually found uh, a blog at the time of a woman who was living this alcohol-free life in a more holistic mind, body, spirit kind of way. And I really connected with her story. And the way that she was, quote unquote, recovering and, and living this alcohol-free life. And it was the first time I ever saw myself in somebody else's story and saw a type of sobriety and living alcohol-free that felt joyful and very exciting to me. And so I read those blogs and I connected with all the Instagram accounts for probably eight months and, you know, trying to DIY sobriety myself and waking up and saying I wasn't going to drink and then drinking again that night. And then I did a group coaching program and that was really what made it click, just finding this community and, and building these connections with other people. And uh, yeah, just really learning more about like the, the neuroscience really helped me understand and kind of remove some of the blame from myself. Because once I understood the, the science of addiction, it made it make so much more sense and it made it be like, well, no doubt that I yeah. got hooked on this. I feel that way too. I mean, that I'm like, like anyone with enough continued exposure to alcohol. Yeah. And by the way, in our society, it is almost impossible to not have enough. Con- yeah. We'll go down that path. Yeah. And I, I always tell women, there are so many more women out there struggling with this people, you know, women, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm convinced that from all the women I talk to, like there are so many women out there struggling with this question, struggling with their drinking, telling themselves they're going to moderate, not do it, that just aren't sharing this. So like the woman you think has it all together, she's struggling with something too. And that means 
that you're not alone and you're not damaged and you're not uniquely flawed. Well, and I feel it could be a whole other podcast episode, but I feel very strongly that that increasing alcohol use is the women's health crisis that no one's talking about. So I completely agree with you. But to, to kind of, I guess, concisely answer your first question, in some ways, death by a thousand cuts is how I quit drinking, just one one little piece of information after another. But part of me wishes I had done a group program or, or a coaching program sooner because I, that was really what solidified it and really helped me walk it in. And of course, I'm like, oh my gosh, you only questioned your drinking and we're sober curious for eight months. I feel like for me, it was like, eight years. I mean, I, I was questioning it when my son was six months old. I saw an article Mm. about, you know, this woman who was, had written a bunch of books about Stephanie Wilder Taylor. And, and she had written these books like sippy cups are not for Chardonnay and nap time is the new happy hour. Mm. So she was sort of queen of the cocktail mommy wine culture. Mm -hmm. Of course, I bought all those books when I had my son for the first time. And then when he was six months old, I read an article. It was on the front page of a paper when I was down in the cafeteria of my office getting a cup of coffee that said basically queen of the cocktail, you know, um, mommy mm. happy hour goes sober. And yeah. she had written that. And I was just, I mean, I clipped that article and I saved it wow. and I worried about it. And then I read drinking a love story. And that was eight years before I finally quit drinking. Mm. So eight months, like you are a rock star, man. You are on the like fast track. To be clear, I had problematic drinking for many, many <laughs> years, but um, yeah, it really, you know, young motherhood was really when I was like, well, I gotta, I gotta get a handle on this now or else I'm never going to survive. Yeah. And and that's it, right? You're like, yes, there's guilt and shame. And also I want to feel better. And I love that you, Mm. you know, we're like, oh, yoga for quitting drinking. I kind of, I want that. (laughs) I want to feel the way that looks because I think it's Mm. so important when you're quitting drinking, not to say I have, you know, this is bad and I'm going down a bad path and, you know, I can't keep doing this anymore because I feel like those negative, you know, willpower, shitty thoughts will only take Mm. you so far. And what's going to bring you forward continuously is wanting something more and better for yourself and feeling excited Mm. and curious that life is big and beautiful and better on the other side. Mm -hmm. So you need that. Like, yes, there's a reason you want to stop and you keep going because you're like, I think that's going to feel amazing. And I want that. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, as as sober folks, you and I wish we could scream this from the rooftops because life is so big and beautiful when you don't drink alcohol. But I think you're right. You have to, you have to get to the point where, you're going for something greater rather than just punishing yourself or removing something because it really is this big, beautiful life. And once you can grasp that, and that's why I I connected with that blog. So, so deeply was this big, beautiful life, alcohol free that she was. And which one was it? I know women are going to be curious. Yeah, it was a hip sobriety with Hollywood. Oh, okay. It was kind of the queen of, of, of sobriety. Um, It has an amazing quitlet book called quit like a woman, which is kind of my sober Bible. Um, but yeah, just, I really connected with her story and, and just being able to live this big, bold, beautiful life. Yeah, that is awesome. And I do feel like life gets a lot bigger 
when you quit drinking mm-hmm. and richer mm-hmm. and more wonderful and you just don't have every evening slipping through your fingertips and yeah. every morning kind of feeling like crap. You just have so much more energy to do more things. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's okay if women who are drinking right now are trying to quit. If you don't know what that is, if you don't know what it is you would possibly do in your life without drinking, because you're going to figure it out, like you're going to you're going to leave the drinking behind and then suddenly get curious and get interested and take steps towards things. So um, don't let thinking, I don't know what I even like more than wine, stop you from starting to feel better. Yeah, I've got like a big smile on my face as you say that because I could not agree more. It feels like it's impossible to know what will fill the gaps, but there's just so much goodness on the other side. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for coming on. I've loved this conversation. And I know so many women are going to resonate with both your story and also find the tools about how to get shame resilience and how to move past some of the things they've done or experienced that that are holding them down, how to let that kind of slide off their shoulders and be more free. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit Hello Someday Coaching. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.